Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast brought to you by Lindenwood University's Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise. Examining market approaches to help solve economic and social issues, Hammond.Institute. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. You may have seen our health reporter Sarah Fenton's report last week in which she revealed that life expectancy rates are decreasing here and across the country, largely because of the opioid epidemic. More people are dying, young people are dying. That's something that a new Washington University program is hoping to change. The university's Brown School has launched the Community Academic Partnership on Addiction, or CAPA. It's taking on the opioid epidemic and other substance use disorders. Brown School professor David Patterson Silverwolf is an expert on substance abuse treatment services and is chief research officer at CAPA. He joins me in studio. David, thanks for coming in. Great to see you. Thank you so much. Well, tell me what CAPA is and how it works. Right. So CAPA is a partnership, uh, a partnership between a university and a community program. And, and we're used to having these models. If you think about BJC, uh, they're a partnership with WashU's Med School. And so that's a teaching and learning and research uh, uh, hospital where lots of research is done, interns work alongside of senior folks. And so this, this is a model based off that. And so unfortunately, while the uh, university hospital and uh, medical school model is sprinkled all across the country, uh, social, work, social work programs don't have this model. And so this is a great opportunity to embed uh, master level, PhD level social workers uh, to get trained specifically in this uh, crisis that continues on. How is that going to help the addict on the street? Right. So I think, uh, fortunately, it'll bring science, the latest science and technology and innovation to this uh, problem. Uh, This is a a tough disease to treat. And so um, uh, getting uh, in-depth, on-the-ground, real-world training early on while you can uh, also direct your education is, is very important. Well, is it going? To, is it going to deal with, uh, with with the addiction itself? That is, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this that will make make some sense. Uh, getting to the person on the street who has an addiction is it going after the drug itself or after the the addict? Well, you know, so uh, we don't. So, so we try to treat the whole disease, the whole person, yeah. and. Uh, you know, so this illness, it's a brain disease. It's a chronic uh, illness. Uh, imagine you have a loved one that uh, was diagnosed that they had cancer. And the first thing they did was say, no, I don't. Right? I don't have this. And I'm not willing to get any treatment. This is not my problem. Stay away from me. Uh, and how challenging it is for a family uh, or even professionals to engage this person who really don't believe that they have this problem. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there, there are a community of folks who suffer from this illness who truly believe that they may not have it. And why would you go to the hard work of treating something mm-hmm. that you believe you do not have? And so what this tries, uh, are, you know, treatment tries to treat those ones who show up and, and somewhat willing and admit that they do have a problem. That, that's what I was getting at, a rather circuitous route, and that is the addict on the street. Is there someplace he can go or she can go to receive that help? Right. So I would say uh, 
the, the addiction treatment industry has been uh, underfunded, overburdened uh, for a long time, and the opioid epidemic has exposed, has exposed those flaws and has uh, created a larger gap uh, for, for people to engage in treatment. The waiting lists are, are huge, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but, but my impression is that CAPA will have clinics. CAPA will have a clinic. A uh, clinic, all right. right. It will start with a clinic. It's on Dunica uh, here in, in, the, in the city. And so there's an existing preferred family health is the ones who has the existing clinic. Mm. And so we are partnering with them. So the Brown School could have either started their own clinic or embedded itself or partnered with a, an existing program. You, you have a number of partners in this, uh, in this operation. Right. So um, CAPA is about when I, so I arrived here in 2012. Uh, and so my research agenda was to figure out sort of the barriers and pathways to use and incorporate the best science, the best knowledge in, in treatment. Mm -hmm. And so to do that, I needed community partners. Yeah. And so CAPA is really about gathering community partners on one subject, uh, substance use disorder. And from that, there have been a lot of things that had happened, uh, one of which is this partnership. Well, how exactly does this work? How do you communicate and coordinate and work and work together? Right, it's difficult. Uh, and so um, we try to stay in contact. There are some uh, stronger partners more than others. And I would say uh, in the beginning, it was Bridgeway Behavioral Health, and they emerged with uh, Preferred Family Health. Hmm. And uh, so we try to stay on top. I meet with the leaders. Uh, I, mm -hmm. We try to stay up with the leadership and try to uh, keep them abreast of what's going on in the latest science. What is preferred family health for those who don't know? Right. So preferred family health is the largest substance use disorder, behavioral health uh, provider here in Missouri. They're in a couple of different states. And so um, they have uh, residential detox, outpatient clinics sprinkled around Missouri. So that's the connection to the, per to the abuser, uh, the, the on-the-street connection, if you will. Correct. Right. Yeah. How do you explain these, this opioid epidemic? I mean, more people die each year of opioid uh, overdoses than were killed in the entire Vietnam War, as I understand it. Right. And so um, I'm in a, the middle of a book. Uh, forget the exact name. I was like, oh, the opioid epidemic in three acts. And so, um, um, the, uh, so it's complicated. <laughs> it's complex. Yeah. Uh, I would say to, to boil it down into one thing, it's capitalism and greed. Uh, people could make money off opioids. You're, that's big farmer you're talking about? Yes. Uh -huh. and, uh, and they specifically targeted communities that they knew uh, that would be open <laughs> and, and uh, that would use their product. And to some degree, physicians were complicit because they were not shy about prescribing opioids. Uh, I would say there's some bad actors uh, mm -hmm. who prescribe. Uh, and so uh, hopefully the tide and the knowledge has turned to realize the the effects of opioids, of, of these prescriptions, you know, but there's still this idea that a person in pain should be treated, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and when a, 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 somebody shows up their their primary care physician and they say, I'm in pain, what's the primary care physician to do? Mm -hmm. And so the best 
easiest, quickest thing to do is write a prescription. Yeah, I, I want to correct myself, by the way. I said more people die each year of opioid abuse uh, uh, or overdoses than in the Vietnam War. I'm talking about Americans killed in the Vietnam War, not the, the overall, uh, overall total. Well, this is a subject you know well partially because you were an addict at one time. Yes. Tell me about that. Right. So I um, grew up in a home that trained me <laughs> how to drink and, and, uh, and eventually use drugs, uh, s- s- cigarettes. I smoked cigarettes in, mm-hmm. you know, 10 or 11 years of age. And also grew up in a, I would say, a very violent home. So, you know, the, the conditions were ripe for a young man like me and my father was an alcoholic, mm-hmm. uh, for me to be on that same path. So, you know, I'm a high school dropout. Uh, eventually uh, smoked marijuana, took drugs, and, and uh, at age 26 wound up in a psychiatric hospital. Right. You're Native American? Yes. Uh, were you living on a reservation when all of this was going on? No. So my people from Kentucky mm-hmm. and uh, and. During when I was young and I was uh, it's and I want to blame my kids now, but, you know, so uh, it's hard to be connected to their culture. So when I was young, I was more interested in uh, doing all the wrong things. And so part of my family's Irish. The other part are, are Cherokee. And so the Cherokee people were good people, quiet Christians. Uh, and then the Irish side were, you know, the typical uh, you know, um, wait a minute, I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so um, it wasn't until I uh, changed my life around that I came back around to my uh, the, to the, the Native American side of my heritage. And so, yeah. What is it about the Native American culture that has led, lent itself to things like this alcoholism and uh, substance abuse? Well, so again, it's complex. Yeah, sure. Uh, and so, um, and just think about uh, this uh, discussion you had last week. I think the the, the d- disease of despair, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah. how this has became become a thing. And let me tell you, there are communities that have been living with this for decades and generations. And I would say, uh, minority communities, this d- uh, despair is nothing new to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, social mobility, hope, uh, all of those things, a, a, a good education. And so uh, there are certain communities, and Native Americans, uh, uh, some of those communities suffer from the same things, just like a lo- other minority communities. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm quoting you, and I at least uh, I think I am, with regard to the changing face of drug abuse. It has now gone from brown to white. Is, is that accurate, do you think? And if so, is that going to lead to perhaps more interest in solving the opioid problem? Well, it's, I would say it's not just me. I would say mm-hmm. um, historically, uh, opioids, heroin, drug addiction, when you thought about that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, most times people thought about uh, a person who lives in the street and their the face that come to mind would, would be a brown face. Mm-hmm. And the opioid epidemic, you know, this is a different face uh, connected to mm-hmm. this. And so the face of this has changed. What used to be a criminal justice issue is now a public health issue. And um, the changing face, while it has brought 
the attention that this issue deserves, uh, it is long overdue. And there have been a lot of communities that have suffered from the criminal justice um, position. Um, well, I'm old enough to remember that it was Richard Nixon who declared a war on drugs. That's almost 50 years ago, and we're still fighting the war. And I think maybe one of the reasons is because the face was largely brown. Right. Right. It it's went from a war to we need treatment. Yeah. And I, that's what I would say part of the benefits of, of this changing face uh, has changed our branding around this problem. We see it as a disease, a chronic health problem uh, that needs to be treated, not imprisoned. Mm. What turned you around? So I would say a number of things. I was I had admitted that I had a problem, and uh, I had a I had a I had people around me who understood this disease, uh, and used the latest methods to to shepherd shepherd me along. Uh, and so um, uh, I was young, and um, I was also suicidal, which um, you know a lot of folks uh, when we talk about OD, it's hard to separate out what is an OD and what is just taking of your life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was also full of despair, had no hope. I was a high school dropout. I was a garbage man. And I, I couldn't see a vision forward. And I, and the, the vision behind me was also uh, not very well. So I was sort of stuck. But there must have been some sort of an epiphany, uh, some aha moment where you made the change. Yes, his name was Ron McKiernan. Uh, uh, First generation here from Ireland. Uh, he had been to prison eight times. He, he was in charge of an EAP, Employees Assistance Program, at the garbage company where I worked. And he was a hardcore, hard-nosed person that had my number right up front and didn't let me sort of lie myself uh, into a, a life of continued use. Yeah. And so he was a big part of this, to have someone uh, in my life. Could you just elaborate on on that somewhat as to his, at his tactics and specifically what he was telling you? Uh, well, I don't think they told me there's a delay here, so I can't cuss. And so um, <laughs> uh, his, he said his second language was vo uh, uh, vulgar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so uh, well, I can remember one. Well, you're really putting down the Irish today. Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> one time I can remember. Um, I was a garbage man on a garbage truck, and I didn't like the route I was on. So I had to meet with him weekly. And I had been in recovery six or eight months, and I thought I would had my life together, and mm -hmm. I didn't need any more help. I needed to get on the right garbage truck. Mm -hmm. And I was complaining to him that I was being mistreated. And he looked at me, and he said, David, you know who's more ignorant than you are? And I thought, who? And he said, these son-of-a-guns that hired you. You, you need to be grateful you even have a job. You need to go there, work, and it doesn't matter what truck you're on. Act like you're a good employee and forget about all this uh, selfishness and self-pity you had. Get there and get to work. Mm -hmm. And those were the kind of like indirect messages that I needed to hear. It sounds like it's kind of a tough love concept. Uh, for him, it was. And mm -hmm. for me, it was. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, that model doesn't work with everybody, right? Yeah, I was going to say, that follow up with that, because, uh, because tough love might work. But if we're dealing with a mental issue, which essentially is what it is, that maybe is not the best approach. Right. And the good thing that he had with me was he had a rapport. And he had a 
what we call nowadays is a therapeutic alliance. Mm -hmm. uh, and I trusted him, right? And so uh, I trusted him over psychiatrists. When he told me he'd been in prison eight times, I was like, oh, I, I like this guy. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to a psychiatrist, I thought, I, I can't trust this guy. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is very important. This is part of this training that we're trying to do at the Kappa Clinic is to um, train students on how to build rapport with people and how to build that trusting relationship to have these hard conversations about not only changing certain parts of your life you almost have to change your whole life right? so what is the glide path for kappa right now i mean you're relatively new it's yeah. just getting underway really yeah. where, where do you see it and how do you see it working down the road six months six years right so we have a cohort of five new students coming in this semester. And so we're gonna have some specific training for them. Uh, so, and we're also gonna do some workforce development for our current uh, uh, therapists. Mm -hmm. And so your listeners might be surprised to know that there are students who come out with a master degree from the Brown School and enter this uh, industry and their first number in their annual salary is usually a three. Mm -hmm. Uh, they could have $60,000 worth or $100,000 worth of student loans. And so we have to make this more attractive to folks. So we, ha we hope to start one partnership with the Donica Clinic, and maybe there's other ones uh, where other universities partner with uh, local providers. Do, do, do you think that your own story is a, is a benefit, a, a big benefit uh, in getting in, involved in this in CAPA and other programs? It, I would say it doesn't hurt, hurt most mm -hmm. times. Uh, what is also helpful is being connected to WashU. Uh, WashU has a nice brand, mm -hmm. and so um, that opens up some doors as well. Well, that brings to mind another question. It's a, it's, a, it's a long jump from a garbage truck to Washington <laughs> University. How do you make that transition? Uh, it was difficult. Uh, it took a number of years. And so mm -hmm. um, um, I was... I, they, I, my general manager at the garbage company, every time he saw me, he says, why aren't you in college? Mm -hmm. And I thought, are you crazy? I'm a high school dropout. And so uh, I went to a program called Vocational Rehabilitation. And uh, they do, they have uh, did a number of tests and determined that I was dyslexic, had a learning disability. And the bottom line was I was mentally retarded and I wasn't college material. And so I, I was first clinically depressed. And then I got angry, and so I quit the garbage company, moved into Volunteers of America, and lived in what is essentially a homeless program for about two years and went to community college and just the went rest, on from there. The rest is history. Well, it's, yeah. a, it's a great story you have and a great project that you're involved with. God knows it's, it's necessary. We have a big, big problem in this country, as you well know. Thank you so much. I want to thank David Patterson Silverwolf for being with us. Again, our best wishes to you and uh, to the Capital uh, Pro Project. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.